Welcome to Frame of Reference, informed, intelligent conversations about the issues and challenges facing everyone in today's world. In-depth interviews with Sauk County's leaders and professionals to help you expand and inform your Frame of Reference. Brought to you by the Max FM Digital Network. Now here's your host, Raul Labresh. And we're back on uh, another edition of the second part of a two-part episode series we're doing with Dr. John McAuliffe. And uh, you'll have to listen to episode one if you want to hear all of the fun stuff we talked about at the beginning, his favorite things. I guarantee you it's worth listening to if you haven't listened to. But if you're tuning into this second half, which is, uh, I guess I'm going to think of it as kind of a nuts and bolts episode, um, because we, we started talking about COVID and some of the broad uh, cultural and individual impacts that this pandemic has had uh, and on our nation and on our our culture, on our groups, our communities. Um, but I'm going to start backwards a little bit and talk about some of the, just the physical parameters of this. So we're at, we're at that second part of the marathon, uh, where the, the end is in sight. And that end in this case, I think is represented by some vaccines are available. And, and even these are different vaccines. Even the process for developing these vaccines is very different from like the flu vaccines in the past, right? Um, can you explain some of that difference that, uh, we saw in the development of the the arsenal, I guess I'll call it, of, of, of things we're using against COVID? Yeah, it, it's really been a miracle, basically, what, what science has been doing with the, with the messenger RNA viral vaccines. And it, it really has started almost 10 years ago, so it's not anything new. People say, oh, well, it's, you know, it's just this too rapid onset. No, this has been happening. And the reason it could be developed uh, so quickly and instituted so quickly is because of the genome uh, had been described exactly. So we knew uh, within two weeks what this virus was all about and what it attached to and what we had to develop a vaccine that could then develop the immune response once it was injected into us. Okay. And so that was there. And so we could very quickly... Uh, piece that together, synthesize that, and then test it. And they've all been tested. At least 30,000 people had to get the test, and we had to dem- they had to demonstrate to the FDA that it was effective both from an immune response and that it didn't have side effects uh, or pretty minimal side effects to it. Okay. And that's what it's been shown, all both the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccine. And then uh, the Johnson vaccine will come on board, I think, fairly soon, probably within the next couple of weeks, I'm hoping. Okay. Uh, and then there'll be other vaccines that will follow that. Isn't there uh, an AstraZeneca? Yep. Has a, a, yep. th- that's the British one that was, is yep. That, yep. that was developed there. Right. Okay. And so that's, those things are all good things. And those vaccines have less of a problem as far as storage. You know, the Pfizer is minus 70 degrees and, and the Moderna is minus 30. But that, so that has limited some of the sort of getting it out there and getting it into people's arms. But we've worked around that. Sure. And so I think that Johnson Johnson, just the one shot will make a, will make a big difference. Now, 
the talk of that is the efficacy is less. You know, the Moderna and the Pfizer is not like 95% right. uh, preventing severe uh, COVID mortality. And they say that the Johnson and Johnson is more like 73%. Okay. Of, uh, but it's 100% when it comes to preventing hospitalization and mortality. Okay. So and that's really what we're what we're after. So that I think is going to also make a big a big difference. Well, and that's even better than most flu vaccines, isn't it? I mean, we we have to guess every year the flu vaccine is developed because it takes so long to produce it. Yeah, and that again, that's a whole different technology as far as producing that vaccine. And you're right. And as far as efficacy with influenza, if we get hit fifty percent, we're happy with that. Right. And so that's why we're just amazed by the 95% uh, with the Moderna and the Pfizer. And that's, again, because of the specificity of the genome that okay. we could that we could quickly type and uh, then get it out there. And that's the direction we're going now is, you know, you hear a lot of uh, uh, talking now about the variants, mm -hmm. you know, out of, New out of England and out of uh, South Brazil Africa and, and South and, Africa. You know, right. And so even right now, we're working on what does that look like as far as the next vaccine, and we know what that genome is, and we're just waiting to see how many other variants will possibly be happening. Sure. I, I will predict, uh, and that's just not me, of course, but it's, it's, it's what's out there. More than likely, there will be, in a year from now, there'll be a vaccine that'll be one shot that will include all the variants that we've seen so far and, and we'll have the efficacy of, of the 95%. Sure. So I, I think that getting back to the marathon, I think the, the, the end of the race is, is, not not necessarily the end of the race, but we're seeing the goal of at least we can uh, have a future. Sure. Well, and is there, I, I, I've been thinking of it too from a standpoint of you know, people get their flu shot every year, right? Correct. Is it is there a potential that there will be a coronavirus shot yes. every year yep. that'll just be a booster for the new things that have come out as a result of it? Correct. Okay. Right. But I, I think it, the coronavirus will even be more specific. And maybe we'll have a, a MRA virus or a vaccine for flu too someday. Okay. Because you know, this, this technology of genotyping uh, is is really uh, exciting. Is uh, it is it appropriate? I, I think of genomes. I remember uh, being at the University of Wisconsin and managing the Union Theater, and that we had one of the first genome conferences at the UW at that point. And they it had just been announced. They had just formalized. I think that was the same year that the Nobel Prize was awarded for yep. the uh, the scientists that developed that. Am I correct in remembering and understanding a, a genome is really sort of a, a chemical map of, of sorts where you, you can say, well, if you're going to make a cake, you need this and this and this and this yep. and this. And the genome basically gives you the ingredients in that cake. Right. Is that four, four different nucleic acids? Okay. And out of those four, and what happens with the G, what happens with DNA, for instance, it, it sort of forms a coil like a slinky, mm -hmm. and it comes back and, and forms. And then the RNA virus actually turns certain ports of, uh, parts of that DNA on and off, and that's how it produces then a protein. You see, so what we do is when we give a vaccine, we sort that's like the protein of the RNA virus that causes that DNA to produce proteins which are then antibodies 
to that virus. Sure. And so that's why our own bodies then can respond when it sees that protein or that antigen, and then that's protein, and right. then it can develop the antibodies to it. When I, I think of um, some of the things we do with store training, you know, we, we talk about uh, ways to prevent shoplifting, you know, and uh, you, the way you prepare and the way you do prevent shoplifting is to prepare yourself for what it looks like um, and, you know, the different techniques that are used. And I, you know, people think, oh, I don't understand all that. And so, well, but you do understand the concept of in order to fight something, you have to identify it, you have to identify the methods that it use, and then take countermeasures in order to prevent those methods from being successful and that's really ultimately fundamentally what we're talking about right, right. you don't you don't see what you don't know mm -hmm. so if you know something you rec you, know, you see it you recognize you can react to it right so and, so what what enabled us this time i mean you talked about there being 10 years worth of research and in some ways genome research goes way beyond that even but um what enabled us to ramp it up so quickly this time that's to me that's the really miraculous part of it is not only was the technology ready but then we were able to scale it as quickly as we've scaled it it just seems like oh my god this is like world war ii when all of a sudden gm could make 50,000 tanks you know it just oh, kind of well yeah <laughs> that <laughs> Yeah. So, <laughs> so again, that, that's what all of immunology and biology and biochemistry and how they can get it together and how, how they can then introduce it to the body and be transported. And that's the, the side effects for this vaccine are really very minimal. Um, there's uh, polyethylene glycol, which is what's in Miralax, is what the virus is actually suspended in, or the antigen is suspended in. Okay. So it really minimizes the kind of reactions that people get from an allergic standpoint. In other words, probably even more from from influenza. There are more other ingredients in what what this vaccine is suspended in. And so people say, you know, say, well, mercury and all that with with other virus, uh, other vaccines is no. There's none of that in in this uh, vaccine. It's very very pure that way. Well, in fact, it isn't uh, one of the reasons why the, um, I thought I read that uh, the initial mRNA uh, uh, things from, um, I forget the company in Germany that did the initial one and now Moderna has a second one. But the reason those are such cold temperatures necessary is because of what this, the, the thing is suspended in. It's a fatty molecule that just right. deteriorates very that, rapidly. That's a polyethylene glycol. Okay. Yeah. That's what we're, okay. Yeah. Okay. So the other, um, and other viruses are, uh, suspended, or the other RNA portion is suspended in a viral like adenovirus. Okay. And that's sort of the base of theirs, okay. too. But the uh, messenger RNA, uh, technology is, is really what made it, uh, able to get out there and get produced this quickly. Okay. So let's do a little play acting here. Okay. I'm, I've got some acting background. You may be aware. Um, but I'm, I'm going to try to be the, the, uh, proverbial person who's afraid right now. Yep. And you get to be the doctor. Okay. I, I, I think you have some qualifications in doing this part. Okay. So, and, uh, and let's see how that goes in terms of how would you respond to the, the situations and the, this person, if you will. Um, so here I go being, you know, the average person who, who I, you know, have experience, I guess, to some extent, but I want to try to do a compassionate and understanding position here. Um, so 
I don't know. I, I just don't feel good about taking this vaccine. I mean, there's all kinds of stories out there on, on the internet. And, and I've talked, a friend of mine told me that people, they don't even know if this is how it's going to affect people. I mean, what, what if somebody gets like a third head or something, you know, six months from now and they, they don't know. They haven't, it hasn't been out there long enough for them to know what this is going to do to people. So I, I mean, I don't want to take that risk. I'd rather get it and, you know, I'll just get a mild case of flu. I'm sure I will. Um, okay. So tell me more about that. What is, what is your fear in getting it is? Well, I, I mean, I don't, usually I don't get the flu shot. Okay. I mean, you know, the flu, I, when I've had the flu, it's just, you know, I get sick for a while, you know, maybe I'm sick, you know, for four or five days, but big deal. You know, I get over it and you know, most of the people that get this, it's just like that. So, I mean, what, what's the big deal and why should, why should I, I mean, I hear people get all kinds of sickness and there's, there's folks that have, that have, you know, gotten so sick from getting the virus or getting the shoot, the shot that, you know, they would have been better off to just wait and get the virus. Probably. I don't know. No, just seems like why take that risk? Well, we do know that it it does uh, reduce your risk of getting severe disease. We also know that even if you're convinced that it it won't benefit you, if we get enough people immunized within a population, uh, that it will reduce the virus in that population. In other words, if you're not willing it to do it for you, do you have grandchildren? Uh, no, but, okay. well, I mean, I okay. got friends that are grand, a okay. grandmother. Okay, I, yeah. so you have a wife, you have other children. Yeah, uh, my wife okay. is really freaked out about this, and she really wants, I mean, she's like, if she knew I wasn't going to get the virus. I, I mean, we argue about this all the time, but, I mean, she just freaks so, out about everything, you know? So sometimes, sometimes if you're not willing to do it for yourself, perhaps... You're willing to do it for other people. We've got definitely good data to show that that makes a big difference as far as letting the preventing the virus from getting established within our community. Um, well, like I talked to a nurse though that came in here and she was saying it was no big deal. You know, I mean, she works in Madison, and I mean, if, if a nurse doesn't think it's a big deal, why? What's the deal? I mean, you guys in medicine can't even agree, right? Well, that uh, I would, I would. It'd be interesting to talk to that person, <laughs> but I would argue, okay, with that person that it's not a big deal, and I would agree that perhaps for 80% of people, that's the case, but for the other 20%, that's clearly not the case, and I can, I can testify to having a lot of those uh, patients that have gotten the disease and got it severely uh, they would have done anything if they could have prevented that. And this is the one thing that we know does make a big difference. Uh, we do know, and just in reference to COVID, again, if you do get, if you choose not to get vaccinated, and even if you do, and if you do get the disease, start running fever, chills, something of that nature, please get tested because we have antibodies that we can give you that would help prevent you from becoming part of that 20% of people that have to be admitted to the hospital and then on a ventilator. Well, like, can I uh, choose the one that I get? I mean, I, there's what are these like three or four different kinds of shots you can get. I mean, can I choose the one I want? If, if you, uh, probably not, it depends what's available. Uh, but I can, uh, I can say there again, the side effects and the benefits, the risks versus benefits are really pretty similar with all of them. 
It's just a matter of which one's available. Well, how do they know? I mean, it hasn't been around long enough for people to know what the side effects are. I mean, you know, how long? It's been like a couple months or something like that, hasn't it? The monoclonal antibodies, you mean? Well, so they've been tested thoroughly. Like I say, in, in over 30,000 uh, tests with each vaccine, and the monoclonal antibody has been tested in more than that. And so those are the ones that we give, for, you know, if you already have the infection. The vaccines are the ones that we give you to prevent the infection. So that's the difference between the – when you what's this monoclonal antibody? What, what is that? So those are antibodies that have been developed that uh, we give you uh, – those we give you if you have the infection. So they basically convalescent serum. You've heard of that. Okay, no. so these are you're using anti- a lot of big words, yeah, doctor. I'm, you, sort of, I, uh, I, 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 I'm feeling stupid. Okay, I don't like that. So no, no, no. These are all good questions. So the convalescent serum is that uh, those are other studies where you know trying to develop uh, good ways of treating the disease. And one way of treating disease is taking the serum from people who have had it, and then they have antibodies, at least for 90 days afterwards that we know. And then we take those antibodies, and then we give them into people who are high risk for developing hospitalization or serious uh, COVID syndrome. And so it's been shown to reduce the number of that by 70%. In other words, from you, it reduces your getting really sick uh, by 70%. That's the monoclonal antibody. Now, the other thing we were talking about is the vaccine to help you prevent the disease, period, from getting it at all. And that's where we want to get the herd immunity uh, up in in the nation or in, in any other community up to 70% because that's when we feel the virus will no longer be propagated. So like if so I get two the different sh- things. If I get the shot tomorrow, you know, I, I don't know when I'm gonna get my time. But do yep. do we know like when when I I'm sixty years old, yep. uh when am I gonna get my shot? I mean I got sixty five to whatever now, right? Yeah. Uh, and and like I got friends that are only in their forties, you know, when when do mm-hmm. how when are we gonna know? Like when we're gonna get a shots even if we have to. Yeah. Right now, uh, 45% of 70, 75 and older have gotten their shot, okay? So when that first group gets done, then we go on to the next group, and you would be then in that next group. That's probably going to happen, and this is an estimate. Don't hold me to this, but uh, what I'm hearing most people say is probably in a month from now uh, we'll be starting to treat the uh, one Second group. So that'd be like end of March, right? Somewhere in there? Yep. Okay. And hopefully even in pediatrics and still that's being brought out there, probably in July we'll have probably enough vaccine to have everybody vaccinated by the end of July. Okay. Including peds. So that will enable us to open schools and to do everything else. So, again, 
getting back to your reservation about it, I mean, you're you're an important part of this whole thing. You can make a big difference. And the quicker we get everybody immunized, the more apt we are to get back to a more normal way of life. So, like, if I get my shot, I can I can stop wearing a mask, right? No. <laughs> well, I don't want to yeah. wear a mask anymore. These no. masks. Make the mask your friend. Masks you're are gonna... stupid. I mean, it just, well, it's just hard to breathe and... You know, I don't know. It's just like such a drag, and I'll forget it half the time. Then I got to get one of those paper masks. I don't know. It's just when can yeah. we get rid of the stupid masks? When we we can get rid of them, perhaps uh, when the disease, when the virus is gone. But uh, my fear is it's going to become like the seatbelt. Uh, a mask will be, and we're, it's going to be part of our life because. The mutation of this virus, this is what the variants are telling us, they're going to continue to mutate. I mean, that's what viruses do. Uh, they'll mutate. 1% of their genome changes every two to three days. And so it's, it's going to be with us. And the mask, I think, is going to be part of that. To what degree, I don't know. Uh, certainly as communities... If the virus is higher in certain communities, I mean, we'll have to do certain mitigation procedures. More, If it's not in the community, maybe we won't have to. I just don't know what that'll look like. But public health, I'm sure, is going to stay on top of that and tell us what we need to do. And cut. Okay, I, I can't do it anymore. I can't. I'm sorry. <laughs> just We were play acting there, folks. If you're tuning in going, what the heck is going on? And I have to tell you, Dr. McCullough was being a sport here because there were a couple of times when I was trying to really get into the part and he was smiling at me. So I, I don't no. think at any point you felt like I was really going to jump over the table at you or anything. Yeah. No, no, that's all right. I've so, been close to having people do that. But yeah, so what would really, I want to maintain the dialogue with you. That was my goal. Right. And my goal was not to overwhelm you. And if I could sense that you were starting to get at it, yeah, I would back off. Sure. And said, well, come back and see me again, and we'll talk some more. Sure. Well, isn't that, that to me, that's sort of the f one of the fundamental problems with this is that we have failed, I think, failed to demonstrate consistent respect for one another, respect for science, respect for, you know, the, the work that goes into it. I, I remember so vividly a conversation I had with someone here, and they talked about how uh, they would respect the word of a nurse who told them at that time, don't worry, don't mm -hmm. make such a big deal out of it. Uh, they would respect that more. They believed that more than some guy sitting behind a desk for 15 years, mm -hmm. you know, studying viruses. And I thought, what happened to us? How did, yeah. where did that disconnect happen? Because that to me is like saying, I'm going to trust the guy across the street that, you know, dabbles with car repair and, you know, only works on Chevys more than I'm going to trust a guy that actually is a trained Dodge mechanic and has worked on multiple PT cruisers to fix my car. So I don't get where that disconnect happens of, I wouldn't trust the opinion of somebody off the street to tell me, oh, you don't have to put oil in your lawnmower. Use the same oil over and over every, you don't have to change that oil. Those guys would go absolutely ballistic if somebody said that thing. You don't even know what you're talking about. But in this case, why, you know, it's fundamentally, it's why should I respect you and what you're saying if I don't like it? Yeah. 
So I think a, a couple things. Uh, number one, when we feel threatened, what we do is we contract. We get smaller. You know, be it emotional pain, be it physical pain, be it whatever, we get smaller. Okay? And so our brains do that same thing. And so they're not going to reach out and say, okay, well, I'm going to, I'm going to sit here and listen to you. No, I'm not. This is stressful. I'm not. I'm tuned out. You know, just let me. Leave me alone. Leave me alone. Leave me alone. The turtle syndrome. And the more I, and the more I, and if I sense that clinically, I said, okay, you know, that's, uh, that's not, we're not going anyplace, but we still, I want to see you back. Right. Can we All talk right. about this again yeah. in a couple of weeks? Yeah. And and maybe, you know, and again, with any change, there's the preconception, there's the conception, okay, maybe I'll address it. And then they're starting to work their way into accepting something. Okay, what are you willing to do? Okay, so you're not willing to get the vaccine. Is there anything you are willing to do? Um, and I, I'm more than happy to help you with it. You know, you want right. to give up cigarettes? You know, no, I don't want to give up cigarettes. I can't do that. I said, well... I just want you to know there are things that will help with that. And so think about it. And I can tell you're thinking about it. Otherwise, you wouldn't have. You obviously have feelings about it, being good or bad. You have feelings about it. So let's, let's sort of look at what are your thoughts and what are your emotions and how can we bridge then to this other area where you're willing to consider uh, alternatives. So how do we switch sort of the unintuitive to the intuitive and make a conscious decision rather than just an emotional, no, I'm not going to. Okay. Folks, my guest today is uh, Dr. John McAuliffe. Uh, we've been talking about COVID and some of the broader-based uh, specifics of it, but also the broader-based fears that people have regarding it. Um, and I think ultimately that gets at some of the misinformation that's been broadcast. Uh, we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsor and come back. And I've got a at least one, if not two, big questions that I want to propose uh, that we talk about. So don't go anywhere. We'll be right back here on uh, 997 Max FM. Tired of lousy service? You know, President Woodrow Wilson once said, there is no higher religion than that of human service. At McFarland's, we take that to heart, and it drives us to do the best we can to serve you. Whether it's in the service we perform on your tractor, farm machinery, lawnmower, snowblower, chainsaw, car, truck, or SUV, we're here at your service. McFarland's, one block south of Highway 12 at 780 Carolina Street, where service is a family tradition. And we're back here at Frame of Reference on 99.7 Max FM's digital network. Uh, my guest today is Dr. John McAuliffe. And Dr. McAuliffe and I have talked a number of times about COVID and the way it's impacted us. And uh, the wonderful thing about talking with someone like Dr. McAuliffe, who's been in the community for so long, uh, but has been practicing medicine and has been a lifelong learner, um, is that we get talking about all kinds of things. Um, and it's more than just COVID. It's what COVID is doing to us on so many different levels. Um, so we've talked about that marathon, and you talked a little bit at the beginning of the first section about being in the second race. How is what is happening to us now, do you think, how is it comparable to what happens in a, the second part of a race in a marathon, that final 6.2 miles, which I would like to think we're in. And we're back here for our final part of our second uh 
uh, conversation here, a two-part episode with Dr. John McAuliffe, a long-time, long-time physician in the area. Um, I, I probably, I don't know, half the population of Sauk Prairie was probably <laughs> delivered by this man. Now, I'm, I'm exaggerating for point of uh, compare, but it was a lot. It's a lot of babies. So, uh, in fact, you, you made a comment, I think, one of the times we talked the, that you've now delivered the babies of the babies. Correct. So, yeah. which is, uh, and if you get to the babies of the babies of the babies, then eh, who knows? You know, it might, uh, might be time to retire. So, but uh, I don't want to tell you to do that. Well, I get asked that question every day. When, sure. when are you going to wrap this up, right? You're going to go home and Val's like, when are you going to be done with this? Anyways, um, so John, one of the things that I guess I, being a theater guy and, you know, having uh, remembered for so long, you know, part of the, what I have really appreciated as I've gotten older with my theater studies is that it is the study of humankind. It is the, it is the study of man's story, human stories. Um, and the, the beauty of it is that you get a chance to kind of reflect on, Oh, Oedipus wasn't so fun, smart doing that now, was he? You know, all the way back to the Greeks with that to, you know, the contemporary stuff of the movies that we see and the, and, and it's pretty much always the same stories, you know, over and over again, just different characters, a little bit different nuance to it, but the stories remain pretty constant for thousands of years. Um, and the characters that are in the play have remained fairly confident, you know, the stereotypes we get, I'm tired of being stereotyped. Well, you're that person. What do you want me to do? You know? Um, anyways, one of the things with all this is that we have, uh, I think exposed some pretty ugly, uh, illnesses, uh, some, some things in our, our culture that have been growing for a while, uh, perhaps, and, and perhaps as far back as humankind has been recorded. And it, some of it is scabs that we keep tearing off and the wound doesn't have a chance to heal. You know, I think of things like, um, trust. You know, we, we have disrupted trust. We have ripped open the things that enable for trust. And every time that starts to heal a little bit, somebody seems to come along and just tear it open again. Um, is there a medical cure? The fear that this has generated, the, the amount of animosity and combativeness that that fear has generated, the polarization, the, the antagonistic, you know, responses. You, you can't in any longer to be a mediator and a person that tries to bring the two people together. You're, you're not to be trusted. That's, that's like, you know, those people are shunned. Um, you know, you have to pick a side. You got to be either with him or not against with him or, you know, blah, blah, blah. What's the cure? You know, as a, as a doctor, is there, is there a cure? Can we, when, when we get done with the virus, can we start working on that maybe as the next you know, pandemic that needs to be addressed? Yeah. I, I think the, the cure is, is sort of the challenge both from a society level, certainly, and that's where media plays a big part, you know. And but then it filters down to uh, an individual thing, uh, sort of assuming you know the locus of control is within ourselves. You know, the people that I see in the clinic that have the most difficulty are the where the locus of control is outside of themselves. And, you know, so, so and so made me do this. So and so did this. You know, they have no responsibility for it. 
people that generally do well uh, seem to be, have more sort of uh, comfort in who they are. Uh, their locus of control is within themselves. They say, okay, I, I hear what you're saying, but uh, you know, I need to consider this and this and this before you know, I'm going to say anything. And they don't, they don't let the emotion then dictate them. But the other, the other thing that makes that somewhat difficult is if you have, say, like the ACE scores, you know, the ACE scores are childhood development and where they've been abused, basically, and, and or have been in a, you know, a, a maladaptive kind of environment, the epigenetics of all this. Uh, so their brains have then just been wired to go to this. So this is, this sort of circumstance is a stressful situation. And so they will immediately prepare themselves. It's like the groundhog that sticks his head up out of the hole and he looks around and if things are okay, he'll probably stay out. But if they're not, boom, right down the hole he's going to go. And that sort of gets to the relationship part of a thing. You know, a relationship is therapeutic if you have two things. You got to have two things. Number one, you got to have to have a sense of connection. And by connection, all I mean is positive regard. And number two is you have a, have to have a sense of uh, focus on what you have in common. Differences are meaningless. Differences are superficial. If you have those two things, you have a therapeutic relationship. And it doesn't have to be a clinical therapeutic relationship. It can be just any, any two people, if they have those two things. And I think the fundamental thing, and getting back to your uh, metaphor with the arts is, is we all want to be understood at some level. And stories give us that sense of understanding. Uh, you know, we can sort of get outside of ourselves and we can see that and kind of, okay, you know, maybe that's got some application and, and, and not. So I think that offers sort of a richness, a curiosity, and it's not it's it's making us bigger. It's allowing us to be more creative. It's allowing us to be more imaginative. And that's the opposite circuitry of the fight and flight kind of circuitry. And so that's what I often tell people who are addiction and stuff of that nature. How and I'm you know, how are you getting larger? You know, are you going to AA? Are you doing this? Are you connected with people? And oftentimes you see that as their, if their addiction, if their disease is getting worse, they're contracting. They're getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And that's what threat does to us. That's what, that's what, um, any stressful kind of situation does. Pain, emotional pain, whatever kind of pain. We get smaller, we contract. And that's what we have to do with each other is do whatever we can to stay connected. You know, the opposite of addiction isn't sobriety, it's connection. Yeah. And yeah. so, and the same way with any kind of stress in, in our society, I really think people do feel more uh, fearful right now than, than ever before, at least in my experience yeah. and what I see clinically. Well, and that and, fearfulness does tend to disrupt our connection with one another. Exactly. Right? Um, so is there a, uh, is there a physiological or a methodological thing that you think can, I, I think of like exercise, is there a simple exercise that you would advise a person can do that would medically help, that would you know, physiologically help them to grow outward? Yeah. So the first thing is that, you know, again, 
again, I see a lot of addiction to just about everything. And it's, it's really pretty raw, right, to begin with. And so I really try to focus on anxiety and sleep, insomnia. And for the first three months, that's about all you can really do. To sit and try to talk and to make sense, and it, that's not going to happen. Right. But after three months, the, the brains start to kind of say, okay, you know, they're starting to make some connections, their relationships within the family. They start to reestablish. They know that the family still doesn't trust them and it isn't going to trust them for a long, long time. Right. But at least they, they sense you know, because of the degree of alienation and isolation and shame is is tremendous. And I think even without addiction, I think people, you know, we all go to the things that make us feel inferior. We all feel inferior in some ways. We're not as smart as someone. We're not as bright as someone. We're not as rich as someone. We're not as hands. Oh, you know, whatever. We're going to go, given stress, we go to our weakest link and we stay there. Right. And then we become this whole notion of we become imposters. And then if we have a sense of, of perfection, you know, we're never good enough. We're never quite, you know, and it, we can talk and say, well, yeah, look at all the things you've done and all this and that. But I still go to the things that I that I haven't done. Right. Which it's interesting how COVID and the pandemic have really uh, just sort of, I, I think, illuminated it exposed it for what it is we we had a i think as a culture almost we had an imposterism going on for quite some time mm -hmm. um and and this this now has sort of revealed that what we thought we could stand on we couldn't and there are some of us that are just struggling so hard to hang on to what was never really real. Yeah. I, I, you know, and I hate to, to say it that way, but it just strikes me that we, we do need to cut off Facebook for a while and the, the fake connectiveness that that oftentimes represent. I'm not saying there aren't good things that happen from Facebook. There have been, but unfortunately, there's been a lot of bad that's come out of it too. And I thought, what if we shut off Facebook for three months and just watch what happens? You know, would that be beneficial? I, I don't know. I'm just looking for some way to calm that down, right? So... Again, getting back to the, you know, all of our behavior is, again, is biochemistry, basically, right, in the brain. Right, And there's the mirror receptors that are part of, it's what we see, and those receptors are in the occipital part of our brain. And when they're stimulated by direct vision, that increases serotonin in our brain, and even perhaps oxytocin. We're not so much... Not so much as it does the serotonin, more the serotonin level. But that has more of a calming kind of effect on us. And we don't see that with screen time. And as a matter of fact, there have been good studies that show when once you get an iPhone or an iPad, within six months, the serotonin in your brain goes down by about 25%. So 25%? 25% in six months. And so, and, and does it keep going down as you have it longer? <laughs> well, that's what the studies would imply. Okay. Yeah. So we we tend to lose then sort of our peripheral vi vision kind of things, okay. and we just get so focused on this, what's directly in front of us, we don't understand what's going on in our environment, and even genetically. I mean, that's what we we go out in nature, and we were we had a panoramic view of things. We didn't just have an isolated view of things. And so sure. we, our brains adjust to that and they down-regulate 
the serotonin in our brain, and that has a calming effect to it. So there again, what can I do now? Getting out, doing things that expand you. Right. What what sort of what can you imagine? You know, and what can you dream about? And you're right, COVID robs us of that. Well, and do something different. I've heard people talk about, you know, uh, learn to play the guitar. If you've never played an instrument before, you know, teach yourself to, you know, write a story. You know, even if it's not a very good story as far as you're concerned, just write a story. You know, just, you know, to expand some part of your brain that hasn't been used. Go out for a walk. I mean, I, I cannot tell you how therapeutic it's been to have our two dogs during the yes. past, you know, nine months and yep. just have to walk them. But yeah. that time away from anything else, just walking. Um, you know, so I, is there, and there is from, you've seen there's a, then an increase in serotonin production, yes, which then leads definitely. to a, an increase yep. in confidence and yep. calmness and right. Okay. Right. And, and then also with the spin that often goes in our, you know, we keep thinking this automatic negative thoughts mm-hmm. called ants. Okay. And that's always spinning there. And so we have what, ant traps here if you're interested yeah. at all. So, so yeah. at McFarland's, I'm just saying. Yeah, that would be good. <laughs> yeah, if that was the other. Right, ant bait too. That's a, yeah. <laughs> so. The other well. way to deal with it, and this is a simple thing, and even with chronic pain, I often have my patients, if that's what they're dealing with, is to sit down, and good studies have demonstrated this, for 15 minutes twice a day, write down all your thoughts. Just write them down. Doesn't make any difference. There's nothing good or bad or anything. But then you got to rip them up and throw them away. And what that does is that tends to externalize that spin that's going on in your brain all the time. And that's been shown to really help alleviate stress and pain and everything. It's not journaling. Journaling is what you're writing and then keeping and going back and reviewing it. I'm not saying that's wrong, but I'm just saying to try to get the spin out, you have to rip it up. And throw it away. But do it for 10 to 15 minutes twice a day. Hmm. And the effect of that is really pretty quickly, within 48, 73 hours even, people notice a difference. So and it's just that fact of surrendering it, getting it yep. out there. Yep. Uh, sounds like regurgitation to me. <laughs> so, well, you know, it, regurgitation it, is oftentimes a treatment of, you know, just rumination. Right. You know, it's, it's people are just ruminating, ruminating, ruminating. Right. And right. how do you start to externalize that and get that out of there? Because, yeah. Uh. Well, we've gone kind of all over the planet, haven't we? Uh, any parting advice for people as we get to this final 6.2 miles, or maybe we're even a little further along than that, hopefully. Any, what, what would be your primary things you want people to take away from this broadcast, if you will? Yeah. <clears throat> given, given any circumstance, okay, there, there's a finite interval between stimulus and response. And what, you really would like people to do is to fight the urge to make that an immediate thing. In other words, do what you can to try to create some space between stimulus and response. Because in that space, that's where your freedom and your power lies. And don't give that up. In other words, take take the idea that whatever whatever the circumstances is, you know, is how do how am I going to deal with this? What do I know about this? What don't I know about this? How do I want to be in the world? How do I want to be defined? And that's what requires some space, and to take that, and that's your that's where what you need to own. 
Okay. I think of, uh, I just took a class not too long ago on how to deal with emotionally charged events. And uh, one of the things they talk about in that is uh, in the midst of it, when you're, you know, feeling the draw to just jump in with every iota of your being, just take a moment. And they gave the examples of just count the seven dwarves, try to name the seven dwarves as quickly as you can, or try to do math in your head, you know, 371 plus 982, you know, just do enough to be able to give yourself that cognitive change of, you know, just kind of redirecting your thoughts and how that is so therapeutic and keeping you from jumping in and making it worse. And instead having this, as I think, as you're talking about the space to ruminate, to, to think it through a little more and, and try to figure out what's really going on. Right. So I, I use the sort of compassion mantra every day and probably five or six times a day. But if I say of a patient that I'm thinking, oh my, you know, what what can I do here? So I'll I'll say to myself, just like me, just like me. Those three words are key, because that resets your brain. In other words, to me, that means this person wants to be happy. This person wants to be peaceful, just like me. I keep thinking, do I do I have to change me to be loved by you? <laughs> and and maybe that's a little bit true that I what I have to do is to say, I'm just like you. Just like me. You yeah. know, and then you can love yourself enough just to want to be understood. Right? Yeah. At some yeah. level. Yeah. Be respected, be understood. Yep. Come on, America, we can do this. Yes, we got to tear up all of that yep. stuff that we've all been thinking about. And uh, I'm going to challenge our media too to be more responsible and re- so respectful. So the, the definition I like of toughness. Okay. okay, the definition of toughness is how long you can stay positive. <sighs> I'm a wimp. <laughs> so when you're at the end of the marathon again, getting back to the marathon, and you got 6.2 miles to go. Stay positive. Yeah. Stay positive. Yeah. What's that old Bing Crosby song? You got to accentuate the positive, decentuate the negative, and don't mess with Mr. In-Between. <laughs> so I've always <laughs> loved it. that song. Yeah. So, folks, my guest has been Dr. John McAuliffe. We have solved all of the world's problems. So if you want to go back and listen to this over and over again, uh, and then go forth and be an evangelist for uh, what we need to do, because, I, you know, it seems simple in some ways, but... It's, it is life and death, I think, for a lot of things. Uh, we can't keep having people going at each other's throats like they've been going at each other's throats and survive. Um, so stop blaming someone else and start saying, just like me. And uh, let's see what happens. Give it, give it six hours. Give it another six hours after that, and then let's come back and talk in three months, right? <laughs> so thanks, John, so much for your My insight pleasure. as well. Uh, we'll be back in just a moment to wrap up this uh, two-part episode. Don't go anywhere on 99.7 Max FM's digital network. There's never been a better time to support small businesses and save big with Max FM Big Deals. Discount certificates from the Max FM Big Deal store will save you up to 50% off retail every day of the week. Local restaurants and wineries, healthy living and spa services, gifts for the holidays, and a whole lot more. New deals are added weekly. Check it out now at MaxFMBigDeals.com. That's MaxFMBigDeals.com. Start shopping and start saving. I really loved the movie Independence Day. You know, the one with the aliens that are hell-bent on destroying humankind. And when asked, 
What do you want us to do? The one representative of the race says, to die. I guess maybe my fondness for sci-fi and my background in theater made me more receptive to the idea that COVID was and is an alien, not all that different from the monsters in that movie. What is decidedly different is that we can't seem to get united in our fight against it. You know, it, it doesn't care if you believe in it or not, any more than electricity does. It will do what it does regardless of our beliefs. Can we trust a voice of reason that says it's real and put aside the political rhetoric just long enough to unite against a common enemy? Can we change our frame of reference to allow for things that we don't understand, but trust others that do, when their job is to make us well? Is there room for that truth in our minds? Room at least for it to be discussed at tables with respect, a desire to understand, and most importantly, compassion. If we don't make room, COVID will have taken a lot more from us than thousands of lives.